You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week, we look at falsified and substandard medicines. It's an issue costing lives, such as those of 125 people killed in Pakistan last year by contaminated cardiac medication. The, the contamination was in error. But one point of view uh, posits that the manufacturer actually knew about it and did not act in time to take drugs off the market or to take them off the supply chain. More on that particular disaster later. But firstly, Amir Ataran. He's the Canada Research Chair in Law, Population Health and Global Development Policy at the University of Ottawa. On the international wrangling he sees at the political level. Here he is with Duncan Jarvis on why he thinks genuine medication is not being safeguarded and the trade of falsified is left unchecked. You say in your article there's been years of difficult debate and that seems kind of extraordinary given that everyone agrees this is a big problem and everyone agrees it should be tackled. So why has it taken so long? It has not been easy for countries to define what sorts of medicines are wrongful. If I say to you that a medicine containing no active ingredient is wrongful, you'd understand that and you'd almost certainly agree. But if I said to you that a medicine which violates a trademark is wrongful, you might well argue with me. And, and there are reasons to argue. So because of, of the lack of agreement that could exist, it's been impossible to define the scope of what WHO should be doing. Mm. So is it really coming down to the fact that all of these have been lumped together as opposed to problems about, you know, bad manufacturing or, or just selling the wrong thing under the wrong name have been sort of separated out and tackled uh, as individual problems? Yes, that's exactly right. So unless one is precise about what kind of bad medicine one wants to stop, unless those definitions are solid and agreed on by all countries, you're guaranteed a situation of acrimony where the countries argue over which medicines are bad and which are not. That's been the state of things for the last three years. It used to be that WHO had a clean definition of what it called counterfeit medicines. And that definition endured for about two decades. But it was undone because of disagreement about whether counterfeiting included intellectual property violations. Now, this debate continues to rage. And it, it rages sometimes for good reasons, but it also rages for very cynical reasons. Some countries, notably India, are in the business of exporting a large amount of substandard or fake medicines. They make money from doing this. And so India has taken the, the mistaken and I think shocking point of view that it wants to obstruct any international agreement. That is extraordinary. Um, so you said there that WHO sort of lumped all these things together three years ago. Was that down to lobbying by, by countries like India? It was almost single-handedly down to India with the help of Brazil. What happened was that India uh, criticized the WHO definition of counterfeit for including intellectual property. As far as that goes, I think India was correct. But India then went a step further and demanded and got their way 
the WHO dismantle a task force it had working on the problem. That meant WHO effectively was standing on the sidelines as international organized criminals made money selling fake medicines around the world. That decision on India's part and the successful insistence it made that WHO, if you will, get out of the business of monitoring and reporting and ultimately, with the help of others, policing fake medicines mm. has cost lives. And I was shocked to, to read in your article that um, trade in these counterfeit uh, medicines is actually legal in a way and so therefore being helped by current trade agreements between countries. Yes. Actually, trading fake medicines across borders is legal in international law. Now, it's a fraud under national laws in individual countries, but as a question of international law, which governs the movement between countries, it's legal. And that's a shocking reality because other sorts of fakes are criminalized internationally. If I, sitting in Canada, were to begin printing South African banknotes, South African rands, I'm printing the currency of a different country in Canada, and yet international law does make it criminal. But I can sit in Canada and sell someone else in a foreign country unregistered fake medicine. And if the Canadian authorities choose to turn a blind eye, which is in fact what they do, Canada is scarcely more ethical than India in this regard, what would happen to me? Well, basically nothing. This is why we've seen a number of Canadians this year alone sentenced by the United States for crimes involving fake medicines and, and unregistered medicines. Mm. So do you feel there that much like you could have uh, criminal and civil law, uh, perhaps in the UK, that these things should be broken apart and perhaps some of it treated criminally and some treated perhaps like patent infringement more in a civil way? Yes. When one violates a patent or a trademark, this is a problem of a private economic nature. It's a problem for the company that owns the patent or the trademark. That's not a criminal law question. It's just an economic question, and it concerns, I suppose, the shareholders of the company, but that's about it. On the other hand, when you have medicines in the marketplace that are fraudulent, that don't contain active ingredient, or that say expired but were relabeled to look as though they're not expired, those threaten lives. That's a true criminal law matter. If you walked into a room and you found a dead body lying on the floor clutching a package of fake medicine, I don't think you would <laughs> ask how awful somebody has just violated the trademark. You'd say how awful there's been a murder mm. and that medicine did it. Well, unfortunately, our legal system right now is more responsive to the trademark violation than the murder question. And that's something we have to change. Now, that's what you've tried to do in this article you've written for the BMJ. You've created these new set of definitions in which you try to sort of codify intent. What are those new definitions? Well, we, we like to draw a distinction between counterfeit medicines, which are just the intellectual property bit. But we also like to, to draw a distinction between substandard medicines and falsified medicines. Hmm. Substandard medicines are those that for accidental reasons don't contain what they're supposed to. They're not correctly labeled. So, for example, 
a company that's supposed to manufacture a 50 milligram pill might by accident manufacture a 20 milligram pill. Well, that's negligent, but it's not criminal. It's a very different situation, though, where you have a company that sets out to deceive. A company that says, we can save money by putting 20 milligrams of ingredient in a 50 milligram pill. That must and be so quite hard to prove. It isn't. It, it's actually quite easy to prove. Because if a, if a company sells a medicine which lacks the registration of the national drug authorities, right there you know that there's an intent to right. violate the law. And that's the case with most falsified medicines. Take the situation in the United States right now of Avastin. That's the brand name for a cancer medicine mm. used to treat colon and breast cancer typically. Well, there are fakes of Avastin circulating in the United States. Nobody knows where they came from because the persons who did the trade didn't ever seek to be registered with the authorities for that right. product. That is prima facie evidence. It's a strong suggestion that a fraud is underway. How do you hope that these new definitions might actually help clear up the field for, for more international agreements? Well, I think they have to. I mean, more and more, the medicines we consume, even in the developed countries, even in the rich countries, come from other places. Yeah. In the United States now, fully 80% of the pharmaceutical ingredients that are consumed are imported. We have a globalized market in medicines. As soon as one depends on medicines from abroad, and that is what's happening, then one needs to know that the laws under which those medicines were made and exported were of a certain standard to ensure that they're safe. Mm. Now, given the behavior of countries like uh, India or Brazil, how hopeful are you that, that there will be a, a new agreement? I'm, I'm actually tremendously hopeful, but I'm, I'm also patient. I mean, international law is a slow-moving thing, and mm. your listeners shouldn't get the idea that a treaty will happen this year, next year, or three years after that. At a minimum, one is talking five or ten years. But the process needs to be started now. Duncan Jarvis talking to Amir Ataran there. So what effect are substandard medicines having on the ground? Earlier this week, BMJ Analysis Editor Tessa Richards spoke to Sanya Nishtar. She's president of Heartfile, which is an independent think tank in India, about the fatal consequences of contaminated medication in Pakistan and what the country needs from WHO. Earlier this year, international attention was focused on deaths in Lahore in heart patients who died from bone marrow depression due to taking medication which was contaminated. Could you tell us more about this tragic event and the response to it? In late 2011, WHO issued a drug safety alert about isosorbide 5-mononitrate uh, in Pakistan which had been contaminated with pyrimethamine and as a result of that, 125 people died. Uh, all of them had been dispensed with this particular drug from the pharmacy of a tertiary care cardiac hospital in the city of Lahore. And all those people were very poor who had gone to that facility for, for free treatment and for free follow-up medication. And at that time, there was also an epidemic of dengue. 
And for a very long time, when these people continued to come with bone marrow suppression, they were confused with patients of dengue uh, until it really spiraled out of hand and then uh, drug samples were sent to England for analysis. It was manufactured by, by one particular local manufacturer. We found out that the contamination was in error. So it was not a case of counterfeit medicine. It was a case of error. But one point of view uh, posits that the manufacturer actually knew about it uh, at least at some level, and did not act in time to take drugs off the market or to take them off the supply chain. Mm. Can you say how big a public he- health threat substandard and fake medicines pose in Pakistan and Asia? WHO has suggested that around 10% of the medicines on the market um, may fall into this category, but do we know for sure? Well, in terms of a quantifiable number, there's a huge disagreement. For Pakistan, for instance, the government itself says that only 4% of the medicines are substandard. Some international agencies put it at 10%, others put it at 50%. So there's huge disagreement. In the absence of independent, large-scale, validated studies, there's really no way of knowing what's going on. Uh, But from anecdotal Uh, knowledge and anecdotal experiences, we know that the magnitude of uh, this problem is really very uh, enormous. And it is not just counterfeit and spurious medicines um, which are the problem. It is actually the substandard medicines from the way we have defined them in the paper. Um, Medicines can end up being substandard as a result of a number of different manufacturing practices. I mean, the manufacturer can decide to import substandard raw material in the first place. Um, There could be collusion at different levels in the process of manufacturing. Uh, And because of the pervasive nature of regulatory graft in countries like ours, there's deliberate inattention to those malpractices at the manufacturing level. Then, of course, there are huge black markets operating uh, and there's black street production of uh, medicines which come into the quote-and-unquote bona fide supply chain through various ways and means. Um, And then to top it all, there are a number of malpractices in procurement and procurement handling. Going back to the tragedy in Lahore, what has the government done in response to the disaster? What has happened since February? Well, in order to understand the government's response in this particular case, you need to understand the history. Uh, A year prior to the Lahore catastrophe and the 125 drug deaths, the Pakistani government had a constitutional amendment which led to uh, the abolition of Pakistan's Ministry of Health. Uh, Now, unfortunately, that was a wrong decision. So the Pakistani government, for about eight months, dragged its feet on the very wrong decision of devolving drug regulation to the four provinces. You know, the regulatory arrangements and oversight arrangements with regard to drug regulation further weakened. Now, in terms of your question, what the government has done, they did resurrect the drug regulatory authority at the federal level. But of course, it needs to be well-resourced. Of course, it needs to be manned by individuals with the right capacities. Uh, And, of course, we have to build safeguards against collusion and graft 
at every level. Can I just jump in and ask you then, with respect to the fact that these regulatory agencies must be adequately financed and, and staffed, do you see a role for WHO in supporting this or other international agencies, or is this something that has to be sorted out at national level? Well, I think WHO is a, is an agency that uh, part of its mandate is to technically support, and clearly it should support developing countries um, to create independent drug regulatory agencies. And in the case of Pakistan, that process was completed in 2005, and a cabinet approval was given in 2005. And then, for the last uh, seven-odd years, no action was taken. And it was only after this catastrophe happened in Lahore uh, that those files were pulled back again and a regulatory agency was created. So clearly in the post-WTO scenario, uh, it is binding on governments in the developing countries to have independent regulatory agencies uh, that have the capacity and are well-resourced. And WHO certainly should uh, provide technical support to enable countries to institutionalize these arrangements. Sanya Nishtar and Amir Ataran, along with an international group of legal, health and development experts, have written an analysis paper calling for a global treaty to overcome these problems. So take a look at that on bmj.com for more of the detail. That's everything for this edition. There'll be more from us next Friday. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.